If uh, you have your Bibles in front of you, go ahead and grab them and open up to Romans chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. We've been walking through the book of Romans this entire year, and uh, we learned that the overall theme that God communicates through this book and in different ways through the different sections is God's righteousness. And, and we're in Romans chapter 9, and what we kind of have set as a theme for Romans 9, 10, and 11, uh, it really talks about what we're calling God's chosen people. I say we're calling it. That's the title we picked. God calls Israel his chosen people. So it's Israel's road to righteousness. God talks about these people, the nation of Israel, in a very specific way. And from the perspective of where we sit in the church age, chapter 9 looks backward into the past and how God dealt with Israel and why. Chapter 10, as we will see coming in next week, will be how God's dealing with Israel today in the context of where we live and, and the times we live in now. And chapter 11 will be dealing with them in the future. And so uh, while we're doing that, I hope that you will see, and, and we have seen together, although there is the direct context of the nation of Israel, this is the book of Romans. And it is kind of the doctrinal backbone for the church. So there's a lot of very good practical applications that we can draw. And we're going to see that today as well. In fact, today uh, we're going to talk about what may be one of our favorite subjects as human beings. I, I know for a fact in the United States of America, there's just something in us, in our culture, in our psyche, that we as Americans, we just love a good redemption story. I mean, we really do. I mean, the story where people blow it, which we do all the time. Somebody blows it, they do something to hurt somebody else, and the general response is very negative. It's, it's judgmental, and that's fairly normal. Uh, you want to make people pay for the things that they do that hurt other people. But if in the future that person repents, if in the future they, they change and, and they come back and they ask for forgiveness, we enjoy typically gladly receiving them and saying, wow, that's, that's great. They came back. What a wonderful story of redemption. I, I think about some of the stories. I, I like watching movies and uh, a lot of you may be familiar with the movie Schindler's List. And the guy, Oscar Schindler, started off a very bad man. But by the time it was done, he did all that he knew to do to try and help save as many Jews as he could from the concentration camps. And if you know the story, it's a heart-wrenching story. He never is satisfied that he did enough. But it's kind of, he's thought of in very positive light because he repented, because he came back, because he tried to clear up as best as he could the evils that he was a part of. Probably there's no more vivid analogy of a redemption story for those of us that live where we live than we think about LeBron James, right? <laughs> and we think about how, wow, he did us dirty, but he's willing to come back, and now we love him, right? Well, most of us. Okay, so what is it about all that? Seriously, I mean, I think that it, the reason we love those stories is because God made us with a deep-seated desire to love a good redemption story. There's just something in us that resonates with a story like that because in us is the capability, and by the way, the history, of doing dumb things. And all of us want to be accepted back if we'll get right, and so we want to do that. And, and I believe that's a God-given thing. I think that that's what God made us to think. By the way, that's the gospel. That, in a nutshell, is the gospel story where God, by virtue of Jesus Christ, has 
provided the way to reconcile a holy, sinless God with sinful man. It's a story of redemption. And that's what we're going to see in the last part of Romans chapter 9. We've gone through several weeks looking at the first 24 verses, and today we're going to jump in at verse number 25 to the end of the chapter, and that's the title I gave it, Redemption's Story, because really that's what we're going to see. We've had some heavy Bible studies the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, and really today's Bible study is not that heavy, uh, but hopefully it'll be very practical and encouraging for you, and hopefully by the time we're done, you'll honestly be able to say, wow, I'm really glad I came. That was very, that was very helpful to me. So if you have your Bibles, just look with me. I'm going to read, starting in verse number 25 of Romans chapter 9. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodoma and been like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith. But as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Some great, great stories of redemption we're going to see in today's passage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, Lord, help us to understand exactly what you are trying to say to us. You have spoken to us through your word. You've written it down. You've given us a copy in our language. You've given us your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. That's our prayer, that we wouldn't try and figure it out, but we would let your Spirit teach us simply by looking at your word and understanding it in context. Help us to understand what Israel's story has anything to do with our story, and help us to realize exactly what your plan for all of us would be. We desperately need you, Lord. We've all blown it. We've all made mistakes, some more, some less. But at the end of the day, when we stand before a holy, righteous God like yourself, we're nothing. We're less than nothing. And we desperately need your grace. We desperately need your mercy. We need your forgiveness. And so I pray you'd speak to our hearts through these verses today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first thing we're going to see, obviously, this is no big surprise. We've been talking about a lot. We're going to keep talking about a lot, even as we roll into chapter 10. It's all about Israel, so the first part we're going to see is Israel's redemption story. And that is laid out for us in the first part of these verses, verses 25 to 29. We've taken weeks and we've covered this material. We're not going to cover it again except just to state that Israel are the people of God that are called God's chosen people. We're going to see that again today. It all started with the story of Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, we gave that unconditional promise. And then God chose Abraham. God then, of Abraham's children, chose Isaac. Of Isaac's children, he chose Jacob. Jacob is the man whose name was changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. They eventually end up in Egypt. And so let me give you just kind of a quick overview. We've done this week after week. If this is review for you, just be encouraged that you're familiar with the Old Testament story. If you're new to the Bible, then just kind of track with the, this is a, a very quick overview of the story of Israel through the Old Testament. So in, it, it kind of begins as a nation. We're talking about the nation of Israel. Israel is never considered a nation of people until the book of Exodus. 
uh, with Jacob's name changed to Israel, they're, they're still just a family, okay? But eventually they are considered a nation in, in Egypt. And when they are in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, they are slaves. And eventually through the plagues and Moses going to Pharaoh and let my people go, and we looked at that last week, we see that ultimately it leads to that last plague and the death of the firstborn and the Jewish feast is instituted called the Passover. And literally the nation of Israel in picture and in type, you can understand that they are quote-unquote saved by the blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. They then immediately take off for the wilderness and Pharaoh chases them and then they are, according to 1 Corinthians 10, they are baptized in Moses and in the Red Sea unto God. And so they cross through the Red Sea, a picture and a type of a baptism. They get into the wilderness in the book of Numbers, and they spend 40 years wandering around the wilderness. And what's that really all about? Well, that's just an opportunity to learn to walk with God and to learn to trust God and to learn to, 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 to get victory over your flesh and the desires of your flesh. So they wander around for 40 years. It shouldn't have taken them that long, but it did due to the sin and the problems that they had. But finally, they make it to the promised land. And when they make it to the promised land, uh, eventually they, they enter in. Now Moses didn't get to bring them in. Joshua was the one that brings them in, and they begin to fight battles because there's enemies in the land. And when they get into the promised land with Joshua, they start getting victory over victory after victory after victory, and they start driving out the inhabitants of the land. These are pictures of spiritual maturity. These are pictures of a, of a believer getting victory in his life as you drive out the old inhabitants of sinful behaviors that were in your life. And so they come into the promised land, they get victories in battle, and they eventually establish a home there. Because each of the tribes of Israel then takes up their land mass, and they end up uh, settling in the area that was given to them. They eventually receive the king that God desired for them, and that is King David. And David is a great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel, he's finally put on the throne, and he's ruling. And the nation of Israel ultimately grows to the point where they become a light unto the whole world under King Solomon. In 1 Kings. And that lasted for a little while. And, and listen, this is a good picture of our lives and all, but, but you, if, if you've read through the Bible like a lot of you have, you understand that in this three or four minute summary of the nation of Israel, there was a lot of potholes along that road. There was a lot of trouble that they went through to finally get to this point. But the good news is they finally made it. They really did. They finally made it. They got to the point where they are the pinnacle, and Israel is the key nation, and Solomon is the greatest king, and he has the greatest wisdom, and the nations and the kings come to him for wisdom and understanding and to, and to just see the greatness of his reign. But then more problems begin to start, and we know the story of Solomon. Of course, the problems come in, and he's got too many women in his life, and they turn his heart away, because all problems happen in your life when your heart gets turned away. When you start having trouble in your life and you start having difficulties and things start going south, it's because there's a problem with your heart. The kingdom of Israel is divided into two. The northern kingdom of called Israel, the ten northern tribes, and the two southern tribes called Judah. There was a long list of evil kings and a short list of some decent ones, but none of them like David, none of them like Solomon when he was doing well. So they're idolatrous, they're idol worshipers, they set up groves, they set up different things, they, they break the commandments of God and God is not pleased. He eventually sends them into captivity, they go into Assyria, they go into Babylon and it's really not looking good for Israel at this point in history. And so just before they're about to be taken captive into Babylon and all along the way actually, God sends them prophets. And he sends these prophets just before the exile where he warns them of what's coming. 
And he tells them about the coming judgment, and he tells them how they better behave, otherwise it's going to be really hard for them. And some of those prophets for this time, this point in Israel's history are the ones that the Holy Spirit gives us referenced in Romans chapter 9. And the first one is Hosea. Now let me just stop here for a second, and Rich had shared with us in the announcements about, man, if you haven't gotten involved in life groups, you really ought to, and I couldn't agree more. And, and let me just also say, for those of you, there was about 65, 70 people that are in a 9 a.m. Bible study class that we have here going through the Old Testament. And we didn't plan it this way, but we studied the book of Hosea this morning. And, and for those 65, 70 of you that were in there, this is review, okay? But, but I mean, these are good Bible studies that we're doing in 9 a.m. And if you have the opportunity to come, we invite you to come and jump in and join us. The first quote that is out of verse 25, Romans 9:25 quotes Hosea 2:23. I'm going to read Hosea 2:23. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. Now, when we see references like this, I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people. We might in our minds immediately think he's talking about the Gentile nations, but the context of Hosea chapter 2 is without question the nation of Israel. It's that story where God tells the prophet Hosea to do an unthinkable thing. Go and take a wife who is a prostitute. And she will not be faithful to you. And she will do things that prostitutes do. And she will break your heart. And she will leave you. And she will run after other men. And she will be adulterous. And he does that to teach the lesson to the nation of Israel. By the way, the Old Testament life of the prophets was rough, man. They had to live out in a physical way, an illustrative story, so that the nation of Israel could get the spiritual lesson. And the spiritual lesson is, yeah, that prostitute wife, that's you, Israel. We were married, but you cheated on me with other gods. You're you're spiritually adulterous and a harlot. And that's the story of Hosea. The context of Hosea 2 is not the Gentile nations. It is Israel without question as the context of Romans 9. I just want you to have that in your mind. Romans 9.26 quotes Hosea chapter 1 and verse number 10. The context is very clear. Yet the number of the children of Israel, there they are, shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of of the living God. Again, the context is Israel very clearly. Romans 9.27 starts out, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, showing that even Hosea's cries were concerning Israel. Isaiah chapter 10 is what he quotes in verse 22, for though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. Okay, so what are we trying to set up here? Listen, here's the review. God's chosen people are Israel, the nation, the, literally the, the political nation, the people of the Hebrew descent that came through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God chose them, why? We've covered this, because he loved them. He did not choose them to go to heaven. We saw some of the errors of that thought in the earlier verses of Romans chapter 9. They are chosen to be vessels of mercy. They are chosen to be able to receive God's mercy, and God's favor. But like we saw last week with the story of the potter and the clay, the clay was marred in the hands of the potter, and the potter then refashioned it into another vessel. Because of Israel's disobedience, they lost their status as God's people 
as a whole, as a nation. You might, comparing it, you might compare it to losing their salvation. That's an issue that we will deal with in Romans chapter 10. So if that interests you, come back next week. But I want you to notice something. With this story of Israel, as soon as God pronounces judgment on Israel, in other words, he immediately predicts their restoration. In Hosea, the prophecies we just read, look, you're not my people, but by the way, you're going to be. As soon as he pronounces judgment, he immediately predicts their restoration. Why is that? Because remember back in Genesis chapter 12, God made an unconditional promise to Abraham. It's not based on how you perform. Yes, there may be some whippings along the way. You're a disobedient child, but eventually it will work out. I will see to it that it will work out. So it says, therefore, a remnant will be saved. And the remnant, without question, are believers. They are people who believe God. They believe his word. They believe his message. These are not people who are unconditionally elected to go to heaven. They still had to respond of their own free will to the message. God just gave to that. He chose them to be the vessels who could receive it and then take it to the world. If they rejected it, they were judged. If they received it, and some will, the remnant, then they will make it. If you glance back in Romans 9, back in verse number 6, when we studied that, it says that they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And when we studied that, we kind of had, had a graphic depiction of a couple of circles. One is a subset of the other. And the idea is this, that... National Israel is who they are. They are the peoples of the 12 tribes. But of national Israel, there will be a smaller group, those that actually believe. We refer to that as believing Israel. The Bible picture, in some cases, is often used. The fig tree represents Israel as a political nation. The olive tree represents Israel as a people who believe, spiritually connected to God. The olive tree, the tree of life. And that's what we're seeing. The remnant are those of the nation of Israel who ultimately trust God and believe. A remnant will be saved. Not every person who has a Jewish background who can trace their lineage to one of the 12 tribes will necessarily be saved. This story will continue into chapter 11 eventually. Okay, back to Romans chapter 9. Skip past verse 28 for just a second. I want to go to verse 29 first. It says in verse 29, since we're quoting the prophets of the Old Testament, and as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth hath left us a seed. That's not Sabbath, by the way. We had been as Sodoma and been made like unto Gomorrah. That comes from Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 9, where it says almost the exact same thing. We'll compare the words and learn something. Except the Lord of hosts. That's what Sabaoth means. It means the Lord of strength, the Lord of forces, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. Had left us a very small remnant, a seed, a remnant. We should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. So Israel, because of her disobedience, made herself like unto Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah, don't you? That's that place that we always refer to when we think of the very worst possible things we can think of. That's the place where the flesh was so in control, the lives of the people, that they were involved in such grotesque, rampant human sin. A lot of it was sexually directed such that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham prays and begs for mercy and 
says, man, if you can find just 50 people righteous, God, would you spare Sodom? And God says, okay. Then Abraham gets to thinking, he's like, well, that might be a tough fit. Lord, I'll tell you what, if I can find just 40, how about that? Will you go for 40? God's like, sure, 40. Well, while I'm on a roll, how about, how about 30? And, and literally, Abraham, true capitalist, you know, he whittles him down. He whittles him down to 10, and he gets God to agree for 10 righteous people that you can find in Sodom. I won't judge it. Well, you couldn't find 10 righteous people. The only people that escape are Lot and his two daughters. That's all that make it. I mean, he couldn't even win his whole family to the Lord, let alone a couple other people. And so Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. They are destroyed swiftly. They are destroyed completely. God reigns. This is literally where we get the term. Hellfire and brimstone come raining down on the cities and destroy it into a heap of ashes. That happened. It happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. That story is a picture. It pictures the judgment of the second coming. It pictures the great tribulation, the ultimate judgment that will come down just before the Lord comes and then restores everything. Luke chapter 17, verses 28 to 30. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, that's Sodom and Gomorrah, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So God is telling you, I, Sodom and Gomorrah really happened, and we're to learn a lesson from that. But hey, it's prophetic. It's going to happen again. That's why all the reference to Israel in Romans chapter 9 is still relevant in the book of Romans because it's coming back again. Ezekiel 38, verses 21 through 23, give us that same picture in the same context. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother, and I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones fire and brimstone thus will i magnify myself and sanctify myself and i will be known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that i am the lord can you imagine if you were alive and saw that and then wonder that the lord is really the god of all no no god says i'm going to make it very clear listen people continue to sin more and more and more because we we think anyway we're getting away with it because judgment is not executed speedily. It is, it is burned into the hearts of man that they can continue to sin and get away with it. But there is a time limit, friends. There is a time limit. You're not going to get away with it forever. Back to our context, listen. Why is that all going to happen? Well, it's going to happen because, spiritually speaking, Israel is like unto Sodom and Gomorrah. Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt. In the book of Revelation, chapter number 11 and verse number 8, it says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. These are these two great witnesses that God sends in the tribulation to preach. Where, where is that great city? Which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Where is that? Where also our Lord was crucified. That was Jerusalem. So Jerusalem in this time of tribulation, a time yet future, 
it is spiritually still considered Sodom and Egypt. Go back to Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 28. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. What does that mean, a short work? Well, it means that when the judgment begins, it won't be very long before it's all done. Like in Sodom and Gomorrah, it will come swiftly. It will come quickly and it will be done completely. The reference to this little time, this short work, this short time, is a reference to the tribulation. There's no question about it. We go to Matthew chapter 24 and we get the direct context. We understand that Jesus, on this great sermon that he has on the Mount of Olives, and he gives to his disciples, and the context is the great tribulation, and he's telling them what is yet to come. What, is, what will happen when you usher in the kingdom? And he lays this out in Matthew 24, 21 and 22. For then shall be great tribulation, perfect context, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Notice, and except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Since we spent a couple of weeks talking about the chosen, the elect, predestination, foreknowledge, please let me just again reinforce to you the biblical consistency. The elect in Matthew 24, without discussion, without question, are the nation of Israel. It is not the church. They are not Christians. There are no Christians in Matthew 24. Jesus hasn't died yet. There are no elect Christians to have. There are none. It's not there. It is for Israel's sake, the elect, that he will shorten the days because of the mercy and the love that he has for them, because he has chosen them to ultimately be vessels receiving God's mercy, because he wants to restore them. It's their redemption. It's their redemption story. So there's a remnant that will make it, and they will enter into the millennial kingdom. So what is that? That is the national salvation of Israel. Israel as a nation will be saved. We will see this in more detail in chapter 11. A great reference for that, you may be surprised, is Acts chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. Acts chapter 3, yes, I know it's after the resurrection. Yes, I know it's the beginning of the church age. Yes, I know Pentecost is chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit came and people were saved. I get it, I get it. But Peter didn't know all that when he was preaching it. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter is still preaching. And the context, just so you know the context, in verse number 12 of Acts chapter 3, he addresses his audience, ye men of Israel. Then he goes on with his sermon. Verse 19 is where we pick it up. Repent ye, men of Israel, Therefore, and be converted. Notice that your sins may be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Acts 3, 19 through 21 cannot possibly be a reference to the gospel that we understand, although some of the words are very similar. Why are they similar? Because Israel pictures for us the story of redemption that ultimately applies to us in a different way. We'll see that in a minute. 
But what you need to understand in Acts 3, look, it says that repent, Israel, that your sins may be blotted out. When? When are Israel's sins going to be blotted out? Well, when the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord and he sends Jesus Christ. Israel's national salvation is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question, Christian. When were your sins blotted out? When Je- are they going to be blotted out when Jesus comes? No, your sins were blotted out on Calvary. Your sins are blotted out and applied to your life the day that you confess your sins, repent of those things, turn from them, ask God for forgiveness, and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. At that instant, your sins are washed away. Praise God. That's not what's being preached in Acts chapter 3. This is the national salvation of Israel. It's Israel's redemption story. They started out okay. But there's a lot of bumps along the way, right? They blew it. But those that believe God are ultimately going to make it. Listen, there are some Jewish people, historically, ethnically Jewish people, that believe in the Messiah today. And we're going to talk about that because that is the context of Romans chapter 10. But they get saved just like you you and I get saved. They have to repent and trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. It's there's only one way to salvation. Okay, and as individuals, we come to him on his terms or we don't come at all. Okay, obviously, you probably figure where we're going with point number two, my redemption story. I say my redemption story, not Jeff's redemption story. Each of you write the word my. <laughs> it applies to all of you if you've trusted in Christ. Okay, so before we jump into verses 30 to 33, go back and look. Romans chapter 9, I want to get a run and start because you've got to get this. Verses 22 to 24. It's how, it's how we ended up last week. We looked at all the questions in the end of that section. Romans 22, it's a question all the way through verse 24, where he says, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So Paul begins to introduce this idea that, hey, this whole idea of God making us vessels of mercy is not just exclusively about Israel. Then we go into verse 25, which we just did, that says, right, and as he saith also. It's a continuation. So eventually he's going to get to the Gentiles, but he pauses and he lays out this picture of Israel's redemption. From verses 25 to 29, now in verse 30 to 33, we're going to make a very practical, personal application. It introduces the Gentiles into the story, and that's really important. So verses 30 and 31, what shall we say then? What about us? What's the point? What does all this Israel stuff really have to do with me today? It's interesting history, but really, come on. Well, that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. So, people who had no history or tradition of trying to follow righteousness, the Gentile pagan nations, all of us, (laughs) we found it. But Israel, that tried really hard, lost it. 
That's, that's, that's the story. Okay, so notice this. Here's in your notes. Those who are clearly not God's people in the Old Testament now are made God's people in the New Testament, right? I mean, literally, it is the spiritual application of Hosea 2.23, where we started. Okay, literally in context, Hosea is talking about Israel. Spiritually, we can make an application because it does consistently apply. It is true. Israel tried really hard and blew it. Why? They didn't go after it by faith. We'll see that. The Gentiles, who really didn't have a clue, when it was presented to them, said, oh, yeah, thank you. And they got saved. Ephesians chapter 2, church age epistle, verses 11 to 13. Written to Gentiles in the church, the body of Christ. Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time... Before, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. They had no history of following righteousness. They had no tradition whatsoever of trying to seek after God. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Thank God it continues. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. That's me. That's my story. I had nothing. I had no history. There was nothing in my life in the first 21 years that you'd have looked at and said, that guy's trying for righteousness. You wouldn't have said that about me. But there came a day when somebody loved Jesus enough and maybe even thought enough about me to say, I think I'm going to talk to that guy. I wonder if he knows that there's forgiveness available. And he knocks on the door of my dormitory room and shares the gospel with me. And as far as I can remember, it literally was the first time in my whole life I ever heard the gospel story. I had never pursued this with my life. There was nothing good about me. I was just a regular dude doing my thing, going to college, living for me. I wasn't awful, awful in comparative earthly terms, but I was very sinful. But all I did was believe it. And he changed me immediately. And every single one of you that have done that, that's your story. Ephesians 2, 11 to 13, that's your story. It's about you. I want you to notice something. And this is really cool. Please notice, those with no history of righteousness are often eager to hear the gospel. The Gentiles... No history of righteousness. Often, people who are a blank slate, people who have no clue, just give them a chance. They are eager to hear. Paul, when he first started his ministry as a missionary, Acts chapter 13, had amazing things happen. Acts 13, 42 to 44. Paul's manner, by the way, the Bible says, is he would go into a city. He was an actual rabbi. He was then would have been honored when he entered the city. He would take that position and preach in the synagogues in front of the Jews. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He would split that thing right down the middle. Some would believe and follow Paul. Some would not believe and be really mad at him. Sometimes they tried to persecute him physically. 
But he would go into these places to have an audience to begin to preach the gospel. And that's what he was doing. So it says in Acts 13, 42, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue after, after he was preaching, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Next, hey, come back next week and tell us, man. We're not allowed in the synagogue. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. Some of them believed him. Who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. That's awesome. Can you imagine? Paul's like, man, I don't know what to do. I got the gospel. I'm going to take it to my people. I'm going to go and I'm going to preach in synagogues. And some of them believed. Praise God, man. A handful of y'all believed. The rest of them didn't. And, you know, we'll see what happens. The Gentiles, I can just imagine, they're kind of peeking through the window like, he's talking about some cool stuff, man. Hey, 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 Rabbi, can you come back next Saturday? I mean, we're not doing nothing. We'd like to hear it. So he comes back, and the whole city's like gathered around here. People who had no background, people who were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. Man, they were eager to hear Right at the start of his ministry. This doesn't happen to everybody. I had the unique privilege at the very start of my ministry in the country of Albania. And and if you've been here a lot, you've heard my story a lot. But just very briefly, let me say, if you don't know. After World War II, Albania's dictator eventually turned that country into an officially atheist nation. Legislated in the Constitution that it's against the law to believe in any god. That lasted until the country finally opened up to the West, one of the Eastern European countries, last ones to open up to the West in 1991, the beginning of 1992. I arrived in 1992 and just began to preach the gospel to a generation of people from World War II, 1945, until 1992 that literally had no gospel exposure. And I can't describe to you how unbelievably overwhelming it was that I would literally walk up and down the stairwells of these old, communist-built, government-subsidized housing project apartment blocks that everybody lived in. Typically a five, six-story building. And here's my strategy. Real deep, y'all ready for this? Get your pencils out. Walk up to the top floor first, because then as I work my way down, it's easier. Go to the first door with my translator, who I decide to marry. And just said, hey, they hadn't seen foreigners for a whole generation. And they're like, you don't look Albanian. Where are you from? I'm American. Really? Come in, sit down, we get you some refreshments. Tell me something about the outside world. I was like, well, that's funny. I have something to tell you. (laughs) And they said, wait, 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 wait right there. I'm going to go get all my family. I'm going to get all my cousins. I'm going to get all my friends. Just stay right here. And they would run, and they'd get all their friends, and they'd cram into this little living room. And they'd say, okay, here we are. We have 15, 20 of them jammed in this little room, about the size of somebody's bedroom maybe. They'd be like, all right, tell us. And man, we spend like two hours, and people would get saved, and I'd be like, all right, this is awesome. You know, we're going to start having church services. Okay, shut the door. Next door. Hey. <laughs> Who are you? You're not from here. No, I'm American. And it would go over and over. I'm telling you, man, hundreds and hundreds of people said, I want to hear this. Please come and tell me. Was it because at the very instant, at the very beginning, were they just dying to know about Jesus? No, they just said, there's a foreign guy. Let's hear from him. 
I began to share with them the gospel, but you know what they did? They believed. No history whatsoever, no tradition of following after God's righteousness, but by faith. And they just started believing and believing and believing. That's just the most amazing thing. Why do you think I stand up here week after week and month after month and try and encourage many of you Some of you people, young people, some of you need to give your lives, man, and go and find your group of people that have no history of righteousness and preach the gospel to them. Let them know there's a Savior who loves them. Let them know that redemption has a story and it can be their story. Man, what a wonderful life. It's not for everybody to, I get it, but there needs to be people that will go. Why is that? Verse 32, wherefore, How did that work out for Israel? Why did Israel seem to get messed up? Well, it's obvious, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. If you were to flip back to Romans chapter 4, we saw it very clearly in verse number 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. It's always by faith, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works. Could it be any clearer? Lest any man should boast. God wants your faith, not your good works. Your very best deeds are considered as filthy rags before the holy righteousness of Almighty God. I mean, it's not, if you have good deeds and you're my neighbor, I appreciate it. But for God, it means nothing, nothing whatsoever. You need to trust Him for the cleansing of your sin. Back in Romans 9 and verse 30, it uses an expression that says, the righteousness which is of faith. And then in verse 31 it says, "The, the law of righteousness. Now you come back next week in the beginning of chapter 10 and we're gonna dig deeper into what that means, the righteousness which is of faith versus the law of righteousness. But ultimately, obviously, it has to do with the fact that one of them is strictly believing and the other is, I got to do something, okay? And the stumbling stone, without a doubt, is Jesus Christ. Listen, people who want to work, do good things, to earn their salvation, stumble at the simplicity of the gospel that says, don't do anything, just believe. Have Have you ever met people like that and they're like, that can't be that easy, Certainly, I have to clean up my life. Certainly, I have to go to a church and give them some money or do something. Certainly, I got to go pray a number of times or cross myself or give things or what. I mean, certainly, I have to do something. No, no, none of that, really. Well, certainly, I should at least, don't, don't they baptize people? Shouldn't I do that? Well, I mean, not to get saved, you don't. Just believe. You can't do anything. Jesus already did it all. So believe that and you'll be saved. The fact that Jesus Christ shows up and doesn't say do, 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 he says it's done. It stumbles people. It it causes people to say, "Ah, it's just too easy. Well, can I make it easier by making it harder? That doesn't make any sense. It's easy, it is easy. Just say thank you. Verse 33, as it is written, so we'll have another Old Testament reference. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and 
whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. They actually come from two different Old Testament references. One is Isaiah 8, 14. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, Israel and Judah. For a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. This is also quoted again in the New Testament. As we're making New Testament personal applications, it shouldn't surprise you that it appears again in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief stone, a chief cornerstone, excuse me, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he's precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. And if you just glance at the next page in Romans 10, verse 11, which we will get to eventually, for the scripture saith, again quoting this, whosoever believeth on him, shall not be ashamed. Now let me just reconcile this for you very briefly and we'll make our last point. Back in Isaiah 28, the way that it's worded is, he that believeth shall not make haste. Haste means hurry. (laughs) He that believeth shall not rush, rush into things. But actually, that word, not make haste, literally does carry a multitude of meanings. One of them would be as though you're hearing, hey, if you believe, hey, just take it easy. <laughs> that's, the message, that's the message Americans want to hear today. Hey, I believe. I'm going to slow down. <laughs> okay, the Old Testament understanding making haste would have had with it this idea of being fearless. Not being ashamed is not an error in bringing it into the New Testament. But practically speaking, can I, can I just say it this way for you? In the New Testament context of, of, of the Revelation, you cannot come to Jesus too fast. It is absolutely impossible. I mean, if you are understanding this message today, and if you think for a second that you're on the wrong side of this deal, do not, do not take your time. Do not go slow. Do not backpedal. Hurry, run to Jesus before it's too late. Because the Bible says in James chapter 4 and verse 14, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. None of us have tomorrow guaranteed. You're alive and well and breathing today. You understand the message today. So the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Listen, just like Israel, God loves the whole world. For God so loved the world, right? He gave his only begotten son. God loves the whole world means God loves you. I don't care what you've done in your past. That means that God has chosen each and every one of you to be a recipient of his love and of his mercy. But you've blown it. Join the club. Who hasn't? You've sinned, you've turned away, and you've rejected God. But God, regardless of whether you've had a history of trying, regardless whether or not you have some tradition that you've been a good guy, regardless of that, 
He'll accept you today, just as you are. If you will accept him today, just as he is, the Lord of all, including the Lord of your life from this day forward. All it requires is faith. I believe it. I, understand. I know that I have sinned, no question about it. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. He was buried. He rose again the third day, and he freely offers me the gift of eternal life. If I will just receive him by faith, confess my sins, turn from that, invite him to be the Lord of my life. He is the Lord of glory, whether you believe it or not. He will become the Lord of your life upon invitation by you. Do that, and this becomes your redemption story. And I want to give you the chance to do that now. So let's pray together. If you'll 